corruption was the biggest threat for the future of health globally. All the resources in the institutions that perform a function of control, they will be mobilized to respond to the crisis. We can be ourselves models. We can really set the tone, can be an agent of transformation. Valentina, welcome for one more session with me. Leopoldine Geronimo, your host. This is Thinking Through with LJ. And today we are going to get deep into what you have been explaining, teaching us all, uh, myself and the audience. We want to lean in into the anti-corruption best practices in global policies. In our first episode, you gave us the concepts. You made it clear that corruption is corruption, yes, universally, but it is different everywhere what people perceive as being corruption in, in the US may not be the same in Mozambique. On the second episode, you introduced the legal aspect of it. We took the example of the US, UK and, and France. So today, how would you introduce the topic and welcome. Thank you so much, Leo. It is a pleasure to, uh, to be talking to you again in this third episode of this anti-corruption uh, series. What I would like to discuss with you is number one, the content of a robust, a strong anti-corruption uh, program. And then we'll probably uh, um, be even more practical and mention um, situation of crisis and how corruption plays a role in crisis. The COVID crisis, um, UN programs, one in particular, and we will uh, end the episode with a very positive message, an encouraging message. Well, I hope it will be an encouraging message for all the people <laughs> listening to us today and how we can really play a role individually and collectively in the fight against corruption. We definitely need positive endings. Um, since we started, you had one pending aspect. You were discussing the complete measures that corporations have to put in place to prevent the anti-corruption, uh, which also has to do with certain policies. And would you like to start right there, the, the measures that guide corporations to embracing the anti-corruption policies? Absolutely, absolutely. It is true that we started that list in episode number two, but we didn't complete it. So we will do it today. In, um, in my description of what the components, the ingredients of a robust anti-corruption program are, I will follow the list that is provided by uh, Article um, 17 of the French anti-corruption law, the uh, uh, SAPAN 2 Act. And I will start with um, item number uh, three, which probably doesn't seem very logical, but I will tell you why. And item number three is the risk mapping. The risk mapping, and I remember mentioning it uh, last time and using two metaphors, a photography and a culinary metaphor. I remember saying last time that the risk mapping is the, the picture, the photograph, or your risk landscape as an organization, as a company of a certain uh, level and, and quality of risks. And your risk mapping allows you to take a picture of those risks. And once you know what the risks are, their nature, their quality, where they are, who is exposed to those risks, you will be able to determine what measures 
you need to take to uh, tackle those risks, to address those risks, to mitigate those risks. Once you have your picture, the picture of your risk landscape, you will be able to determine the quality and the quantity of all the other ingredients of your anti-corruption program. This is why I'm starting from number three, the risk uh, mapping. And since the activities of an organization, um, its development, um, members of it, the way the organization uh, cooperates with the partners, they all change. An organization is a living entity. It means that risks will also change, that your risk landscape will change. Your uh, mapping of risks needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, done again. The picture needs to be taken again so that at all times or regularly you update that and you always have a picture of your risks that reflects the actual situation. So now that we know what the uh, basic ingredient is, we can, we can really go through the uh, French list of the uh, Article 17 of the French anti-corruption law. And the um, ingredient number one is a code of conduct. If I use the language of the uh, U.S. anti-corruption system or the British anti-corruption system, I would say procedures. It means determine, set the rules. What are the behaviors that are accepted or acceptable and what are the behaviors that are uh, prohibited? Uh, I set the rules. I tell people what I um, expect, what I uh, require of them to be in compliance with my anti-corruption system. So I, I write codes of conduct, I write procedures, I make them accessible. And I also remember mentioning this before. When I say that the code of conduct has to be accessible, it is, of course, being materially accessible. I need to know where to go to find that document, whether it is a digital document or whether it is a hard copy of the document. More importantly, the code of conduct, the rules I said, need to be accessible intellectually. The rules need to be intelligible. I cannot write a code of conduct which is understandable only for people who are initiated to the law, people who master the legal jargon. The rules need to be understandable for every single member of, of the organization, including those who don't speak the, the legal language, so that it is clear uh, what the expectations are for members of the organization in terms of uh, detecting and deterring corruption. And then ingredient number two, item number two of the French list is the um, creation of whistleblowing channel. We mentioned this before. We need to give people tools to escalate information, information that pertains to any breach of the law, as well as information that pertains to corruption. Episodes of corruption um, need to be escalated uh, by members of the company. Members of the organization need to feel empowered and to become agent of transformation and also by sharing the information. In France, the protection of whistleblowers was already quite strong thanks to the 2016 anti-corruption law. And now, um, given a, a law was just uh, adopted in France, it is even, even uh, stronger, the, the legal status, uh, legal protective status of whistleblowers. And this law was the, the result of the transposition into internal law, into nas French national law of the European uh, directive. So in Europe, we have a, a strong legal framework to protect whistleblowers. 
Ingredient number three, I mentioned at the very beginning, the, the risk mapping. And then uh, number four is due diligence on third parties. Your obligation is just to assess, to be aware of the risk of corruption to which doing business with that third party exposes you, and then to take measure to mitigate, to control that risk. It can be inserting in the contract a very robust anti-corruption clause. It can be conducting audits on the side of your business partner. It could be providing training to your business partner or asking that business partner to comply with your code of conduct. There are many different solutions. The bottom line is to, to know uh, the risks of corruption that that third party exposes you to and to take all the measures uh, that are necessary to mitigate that risk. In general, what I, what I tell my students, you can have friends whose reputation is not particularly good and determine what you need to do, what kind of precautions you need to take so that somebody else's bad reputation doesn't uh, impact your own reputation. Now, uh, when you mentioned uh, the measures and, and how cooperation can be compliant, I'm being a bit more in need of clarification, mm -hmm. but only to look at the issue you mentioned that only corporations that have around 500 employees are obliged to have some sort of compliance measures in place, uh, policies to fight corruption. I'm wondering, is it the number of employees that sets the relevance for an anti-corruption policy or just the existence of the firm itself already sets the need? Uh, I totally get your question. There are two levels of obligation. One is the creation of an anti-corruption program. I mentioned four of the components. I will briefly mention the other four components of an anti-corruption program. Um, even in my description, you, you understand that it is an extremely, I would say, complicated. It is a huge effort for a company to put in place to implement such a program. So you cannot ask a very small company to put in place the same full-fledged anti-corruption program. The effort would be absolutely extraordinary and impossible for a small company, a small organization. So this is one level of, of uh, one obligation uh, to, to implement an anti-corruption program, such a robust anti-corruption program. And only big organization can do it. And probably only big, big organization really need this level of um, structure in their anti-corruption efforts. Another thing which um, has little to do with anti-corruption laws is that uh, corruption, uh, even before the adoption of an anti-corruption law, is, is not legal, is not uh, legally or, or morally acceptable. So when we say the French anti-corruption law, the British anti-corruption law, the U.S. anti-corruption law. We are not saying before the adoption of that law, companies could corrupt the way they wanted or, or be corrupted. We are just saying there is an additional level of obligation. There is an additional layer of request, I should say, uh, another requirement uh, from the state to companies and to organizations, to public and private entities, 
which is not just to refrain from corruption, but it is to actively take measures to prevent corruption. The situation in terms of refraining from corruption or prohibiting corruption is the same before and after the anti-corruption law. Corruption is absolutely not acceptable legally and morally, as I said before. But with anti-corruption law, we are asking organizations to be active, to play an active role in detecting and preventing corruption. This is really the the revolution, uh, even in the mindset, to ask companies not just to not do something because it is against the law, but to really take action uh, and to become agent of transformations in addressing addressing that issue. That is definitely uh, what I needed to know. And I think it's a good um, step forward to the COVID case. Uh, taking the example of COVID, could you then relate Leo, corrupt? Just, just a second. Okay. Can I just very briefly mention the other components of the entire corruption program? And of I will course. be super quick. I promise. I promise. <laughs> I will do it. I will do it in in one minute. Uh, there are four additional ingredients. Um, mm-hmm. One is um, accounting uh, controls. Uh, make sure that the books of the company do not conceal operations of corruption. One of my favorites, to be honest, uh, it is uh, uh, training and communication. Teach members of the organization what corruption is and also equip them so that uh, when they face a situation of corruption, they will know how to respond. To that. And then you have a, a, a disciplinary uh, system, uh, ingredient number seven. You set the rules, but you also determine what the consequences are in case of a breach of the rule or of the rules. And then number eight obligation is really monitoring, control, and review of your anti corruption program so that at any moment your uh, measures to fight against corruption reflect your famous risk uh, landscape uh, item, which I put as number one, and that it is at all times uh, effective in uh, fighting against corruption. I hope I kept my promise. And here we are with the eight ingredients of a strong uh, program to fight against corruption. And the good news is that I gave you the list uh, that we have in, in, in the French system, in Article 17 of the uh, French Satan to Act. But the a strong anti-corruption program uh, has the same uh, components, the same content in the US system, in the British system. Uh, and this is the good news for multinational corporations. If you have a, a program compliant with the French law, it, it will be likely to resist the scrutiny of the British or US uh, authorities. Mm. You delivered, you delivered. And and I was, um, I was going to ask you to make a connection then taking the COVID example. Yeah. Um, but how do we discuss it in terms of crisis and corruption? We, we tried uh, to get there on our first episode, but of course, time wasn't necessarily enough. But can you explore that angle? Absolutely. And I will start with a quote. What I am about to read was pronounced by the president of RICO, Group of States Against Corruption, who said, as governments face successive waves of the COVID-19 pandemic and still need to react quickly, they frequently resort to extraordinary measures. Despite the exceptional situation, it is crucial 
that governments act in full respect of the law and base all their actions on the principles of transparency, oversight, and accountability. The risks of corruption related to the pandemic remain high, particularly in the health sector and in government's action to tackle its economic impact. Public access to information continues to be crucial, as do effective whistleblower protection schemes. We are, or we hope to be, at the end of a health crisis, which turned into a financial crisis. Transparency International releases its report at the beginning of 2021, and it highlighted very limited progress in the fight against corruption in 2020. Progress was limited, as I said, and more than two-thirds of countries scored below 50 in the Transparency International Anti-Corruption Index, which means pretty low score. And the root cause for this limited progress was identified as being COVID and the health crisis. Um, So I would say that the health crisis fed into corruption. And what are the mechanisms for corruption to have a, I would say, a, a broader space to thrive in times of crisis? Well, number one mechanism is that In a situation of crisis, in particular, in a situation of a health crisis, there is pressure on the institutions. In order to save lives, the institutions have to uh, take action in a very expeditious uh, way. And to do that, they tend to streamline processes to loosen regulations so that all the parts that are considered as being unnecessary are removed and action uh, can really be taken in a very quick way. And in parallel, all the resources in the institutions that, uh, that perform a function of control, they will be mobilized to respond to the crisis. And the second mechanism is that uh, companies, even very ethical uh, companies, in a situation of crisis, they see their survival as being at stake. So they might want to wink at corruption. If I know that paying a bribe will help me retain business, and if I know that my survival uh, is at stake, my survival as an organization is at stake, I might want to pay that bribe just to survive, just to keep business, just to to, to remain um, active. These are the two mechanisms that are loopholes that open that door for corruption in a situation of crisis. And as you can easily imagine, in a situation of health crisis, countries' health systems are already fragile, weak. They will be even more penalized, even more impacted uh, by the crisis. There is really a vicious circle in which you start with a situation of uh, crisis, you insert a mechanism of corruption and you end up with an even worse crisis. Transparency International uh, published an article whose title was How Corruption is Making People Sick. And in that article, it quoted an other article of a medical uh, journal in which it was said that corruption was the biggest threat for the future of health globally. Let me just try to explain the the mechanism of corruption and the health crisis. You start with a situation of crisis in which you have people dying and sick people. You insert 
corruption in that. For example, you ask people to pay a bribe to get a, a PCR test, or you buy bad quality masks just because someone, just because the supplier paid a bribe. So this corruption will, um, will make the situation even more difficult. So you started with people dying and sick people. You have corruption in that, in that circle. And in the end, you will have even more people dying and sick people. So this is the, the role that corruption plays in a crisis, in a health crisis. Of course, the examples I provided are very simple, but again, as much as corruption can be a very sophisticated uh, system or can take very sophisticated shapes, the very basic mechanisms are always the same. But now you could ask me, well, I am in a situation of crisis. I need to save lives. I need to streamline processes. Otherwise, I will never be able to respond to the crisis um, in the way I should. So how do I respond to the crisis and at the same time preserve and protect my efforts to guard against corruption? There are a couple of ways in which you can strike that balance. Number one is to uh, make the new processes, the streamlined processes, the, the, the new uh, rules and regulations temporary. You determine that they will be effective only for three, six months, and then you, you review them. Uh, you don't make them um, eternal. Because the risk is that a, an anti-corruption culture, a culture of uh, compliance, an ethical culture, takes years to build but with bad decisions taken, for example, in a time of crisis, you can damage, you can compromise that culture that took years to build. And that, that is the risk you don't want to run. You want to preserve your efforts. You want to preserve the results of your efforts to fight against corruption. And the second solution uh, is represented by the uh, uh, the the the, the best practices in general to fight against corruption. Number one is access to information. And I think that you somehow mentioned that in the Mozambique case you, 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 um, you quoted before. Uh, access to information, it means to make information uh, open, public, transparent, accessible to people. And when I know that what I do, for example, the uh, um, a, procurement process, when I know that what I do will be, will be known by other people, I will probably refrain from corruption because I don't want other people to, to know uh, that, my, um, that my ethics or my morality or my legality are not impeccable. That's exactly what you don't want other people to do. And this is why I said at the very beginning of the series that corruption is by nature a hidden uh, phenomenon. And then the second best practice is to promote uh, integrity and transparency. Even in companies, try to share documents, information on procurement, conflicts of interest, final beneficiaries, uh, risk mappings, audit. For confidential information, of course, you keep them confidential, but try to share with a, a good number of people so that uh, any any wrongdoing might be detected. And the third best practice, and here I am again speaking about whistleblowers, is really to, to encourage citizens 
to to share information and to empower uh, people to let them know that they can really be agents of transformation and when they share information when they put their lives at risk you will protect them the oil for food scandal yeah i think all the questions i've been asking you were to warm up uh, this is probably why i wanted to land the oil for food scandal and you categorically said that this would be a good case for us to dive into and it will allow us to understand the nuances behind uh, global best practices to tackle corruption. So yes. tell me about it. And you know, your approach is the right one. When we talk about um, corruption scandals in the past, it is not just to, to, to do some kind of intellectual exercise or to blame organizations. It is really to understand what um, was not right and what could be done in the future uh, to avoid finding ourselves in the same kind of situation. This is really the approach, the, uh, the attitude we should have, a, a very humble and, and, and learning uh, attitude to, again, to prevent the situations from happening again. So the um, UN Oil for Food program was a program started in 1996 by the UN Security uh, Council. And in terms of magnitude, it was the biggest humanitarian program uh, since the um, Marshall Plan. The purpose of it was extremely positive. It was to use the proceeds of, of oil, of the, uh, from the sale of Iraqi oil, to pay for, for food and for other uh, necessity goods, humanitarian aid for the um, Iraqi uh, population. So very, very simple model. Iraq was to sell oil. The money would be put in escrow accounts controlled by the UN. And the, that money would be used to buy food and to buy humanitarian aid for the Iraqi population. So very simple, uh, very effective and very positive. Let's just remember that back then, we are in 1996, uh, the Iraqi population was suffering because of the, because of the sanctions imposed uh, on the country after the, uh, the war, after the first uh, Gulf War. The program, as I said before, very positive in its um, intention, in its purposes, led to a major uh, corruption scandal. And so that scandal also led to the creation of a UN independent inquiry committee, which was led by the former US Federal Reserve uh, Chairman, Paul Volcker. As you can imagine, the committee released a very long report, hundreds, hundreds of pages of uh, uh, report, uh, that was published on the 27th of October of 2005. And according to the report, the number of companies uh, participating in, in corruption was around 2,000, which means around 50% of the companies participating in one way or another in the UN Oil for Food program were also involved in corruption, in, in paying uh, kickbacks in paying illegal uh, surcharges um, to, uh, to win contracts. So what, according to the, to the um, report of the committee, what are the causes for this 
corruption, for this scandal of corruption uh, to, uh, to have become one of the uh, um, consequences, one of the results of this program. Well, number one was mismanagement, uh, weak planning, uh, inadequate funding, too few professional staff, and I am quoting. So number one was really mismanagement. Number two, root cause for corruption to thrive in the uh, UN Welfare Food Program was, uh, um, had to do with procurement. The procurement office did not follow the rules that would guarantee fairness and accountability. And the number three reason for corruption in the program had to do with conflicts of interest. So if you look again at the three root causes, mismanagement, uh, procurement processes that were not transparent, that were quite opaque, and conflicts of interest. These are not just the root causes of that of corruption in that program, but in general, when you have mismanagement, uh, um, very poor procurement processes, and conflicts of interest, you open the door to corruption. It is a, I would say, universal rule that this particular ingredients will uh, necessarily or very often lead to corruption. Let's now have a look at how practically uh, corruption uh, unfolded. As I said before, um, corruption can take very sophisticated shapes, but at the very, at the very, um, at the very heart of it, the mechanisms are always the same. There were two main um, corruptive uh, mechanisms in the uh, in the program. Number one um, was the use of secret oil vouchers. The Iraqi government uh, would give um, secret oil vouchers to individuals and to companies, um, and the vouchers uh, would allow these uh, people to sell oil at a higher price. And the way the Iraqi government used the secret oil vouchers was to uh, uh, reward companies and individuals willing to dodge sanctions. At that time, Iraq could not buy military equipment because of the sanctions imposed to Iraq after the war. So using secret oil vouchers meant that the Iraqi government could reward, pay and reward companies willing to still uh, sell uh, military equipment to the Iraqi government even though there were sanctions prohibiting that. The second mechanism of corruption in the um, UN oil for food program was the um, use of kickbacks. If I am a food supplier or a supplier of humanitarian aid, and I want to uh, become a supplier to uh, Iraq in that program, what will I do? I will pay a kickback to the Iraqi government to be selected and to become an official supplier uh, for the program and, and for the um, and for the of Iraq. So if we look at the structure of the organization of the pro program, uh, you have monitoring uh, from the UN. The UN was supposed to monitor and to approve um, Iraq's oil sales. 
As I said before, the money um, was put in escrow accounts. The proceeds from oil sale was meant to be used only to buy humanitarian aid and to buy food. But still, there was one, um, one loophole uh, that created that space of corruption. It is that Iraq still had some latitude, some space to uh, decide, to choose to whom to sell oil and from which suppliers to buy food and humanitarian aid. And also the Iraqi government created a network of intermediaries. And this is what, sorry to, to use this expression again, but I think it makes sense to open the door to create a space for corruption. Um, beneficiary of oil vouchers, since I said before I would mention countries, uh, where uh, in, in, in Russia, in France, 15% of them, China, Malaysia, Syria, US, Switzerland. So lots of companies and, and lots of countries involved in this scandal. But as I said before, we need to learn from uh, these situations and not just judge them. So let's have a look at the recommendations uh, in the uh, uh, report to see what could have been done differently and what can be done differently in other UN and not just UN programs to uh, uh, prevent uh, situations of corruption. One of the recommendations was to create a position of COO, of Chief Operating Officer in the UN to coordinate UN programs. And the, um, another recommendation was to create an independent oversight board, again, in the UN, and then to, to foster um, better clarity in UN operations, in particular in, 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 in purposes and criteria of UN programs. Of course, to promote better coordination between different UN agencies, and also, as we saw that mismanagement was one of the root causes of corruption in the uh, UN Ultra Food Program, one of the recommendations was to strengthen uh, the quality of management practices in the UN to try to attenuate, to eliminate that situation of mismanagement, which can be at the origin of corruption. This was um, one of the major cases and and i was really curious when you when you introduced it to me but now i think we are at the point that we can connect the past cases the oil for food program and the covid um, the corruption scenarios in in covid and we see that there is a, a correlation that we don't seem to learn um, a lot from the best practices even if the bigger report the the 600 uh, pages report comes with full of details to what to do, how to improve, and, and the recommendations that you, you also gave. Luckily, the policies these days are already stating the measures that corporations have to fulfill, but the international organizations such as the UN usually have their way around to escape from scandals right, uh, such as the case in Haiti a few years ago uh, the, because of the, the natural disasters there and, and Naomi 
Klein, um, a journalist writer, that she's very um, detail-oriented in analyzing the, the shock doctrine that in this crisis, private companies, the big organizations come in to take power and reshape policies that do not necessarily result into intended or expected results from the side of the, the beneficiaries. I do not want to get into the detail if the oil for food program worked. The design sounds really great. We will have to go back into that and, and research, but we'll obviously add a link to that particular page in the, the articles you shared. How do we move forward from there? There's a lot of uh, negativity, not because we are trying to be negative, but because the case itself, it's deep down negative, right? It's corruption. Corruption affects everyone from every angles, although benefiting a very few handful, uh, maybe governments and private entities, but then the tone at the top, how leaders can inspire and shape ethical behaviors. Exactly. Uh, this is my, 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 my good and positive message for the end of the, uh, of the series. And I will start again with a uh, quote. Uh, Judge Goldstone, member of the um, UN meeting and another member, said, crucially important in any organization of this size is a culture of discipline and accountability. And so the tone at the top imperative. I call it an imperative because it is not precise or detailed enough to be an obligation. If you want to enforce an obligation, you need to tell people exactly what you want them to do. When it is too vague, it cannot be an obligation. It is not enforceable. This is why I call it an imperative. Tone at the top, in French, we say the commitment of the top leadership. So why is it a is it a, an effective um, recipe for success in the fight against corruption to ask the top leadership to commit to the fight against corruption? There are two reasons for that. Number one, in general, we tend to observe, listen to, imitate the top leadership of an organization, of a country. So they really have the power to to become models and to shape behavior, to influence our behavior. And reason number two is that the top leadership, again, it could be in an organization, it could be in a country, they make key decisions. Uh, they get to decide what kind of activities need to be developed, what kind of partners uh, to do business with, in which countries uh, they want to do uh, business, etc., etc. And through uh, these key decisions, they can show um, if they have the fight against corruption at heart. And there is also another uh, set of decisions. In an organization, uh, the top leadership gets to decide the resources that are allocated to uh, the anti-corruption team. How many people, what level of seniority do I want senior people, do I want junior people to be in charge of the head against corruption? What kind of profile people coming from the public sector, from the private sector? And also, how much money do I want to put in my anti-corruption department, in my anti-corruption team? These key decisions will show you if the top leadership is committed to fight against corruption or not. In any moral system, you have two components. 
Number one is normativity. You set the rules and you determine what the consequences are if the rules are not respected. But the second component, which is extremely powerful, is character formation. You can inspire and shape other people's behavior. And when people behave in a similar way, when they speak the same language, when they share a code, you really have a culture. You are really touching, you're really seeing a culture when people uh, metaphorically speak the same language. And it is the same for uh, anti-corruption, for the creation of an anti-corruption culture, which is just part, uh, one small or big part of a culture of ethics. The good message, the final good message is that not only the top leadership can uh, set the tone, but each one of us, no matter where we are, no matter if we are leaders or not, we can behave in a way that will set a model, that will impact, shape other people. We can be ourselves models. We can really set the tone, can be an agent of transformation and can really be an actor, not to say a protagonist in the fight against corruption and in the creation of a culture of ethics. Thank you, Valentina. This was the best uh, closing remark. I could uh, uh, definitely avoid making any comments. We were discussing anti-corruption best practices in global policies. I really hope to come join you again in a different discussion very soon. I hope the same. It was really a genuine pleasure to have these three conversations with you on the fight against corruption. It will be a pleasure to continue our conversation. And thank you so, so much again for having me. I'm Leopoldine Giron. See you very soon.